Well, welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS, and I'm really delighted this week to be joined by Professor Alan Winters, who is Professor of Economics at the University of Sussex and also Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory there. And uh, for the purposes of this interview, he's an expert on trade and in particular an expert on where we might be going in terms of our future trading relationships with the rest of the European Union uh, and indeed more broadly. In case you'd forgotten, not only have we been dealing with the coronavirus pandemic this year, but we have been moving closer and closer to the reality of our new relationship with Europe, with the real impact of Brexit hitting us at the beginning of January next year. And we still don't quite know what that new reality is going to look like whilst we're recording this on the first day of December in 2020, just a month away uh, from the end of the transition period. We still don't know what the deal we will get with the rest of Europe will look like or indeed whether we will um, have a deal or not. But Alan, perhaps let's just start with that question um, of what do we mean by uh, a trade deal with the rest of the EU? What will change on the 1st of January um, when we have, if we even if we do have a trade deal? Well, the 1st of January is the end of the so-called transition period that followed uh, the withdrawal agreement um, about a year ago. Um, At that point, if we don't agree anything else, we fall right out of the single market, right out of the customs union, and come to be treated by the EU as a third country. And that means in the absence of anything else, we will pay their sort of regular tariffs, what uh, trade wonks call the most favoured nation tariff, Um, and um, uh, will face a great deal, well, a fair amount of bureaucracy, uh, actually moving goods in and uh, out of uh, the EU. Uh, By the same token, we will also charge tariffs on the EU. We have um, actually created our own tariff, the UK Global Tariff, but it's very similar, in fact, to the EU's tariff. So that's if we don't get a deal. That's no deal. Um, If we do get a deal, as far as one can ascertain, um, all it will do is um, uh, involve tariff-free, quota-free trade between the UK and the EU. And I think uh, any deal we sign will achieve that just very slight exceptions possible. Um, It will not offer uh, very much else. Um, And uh, that, in a sense, is why the deal is not the big story. Uh, For all we're focusing on it um, in the press, uh, in a sense, the big story has gone and passed. Uh, We're dropping out of the single market. All the regulations that we've shared with the EU that ensure that UK goods are acceptable in the EU and and the EU goods acceptable in the UK uh, go by the board. Um, And those regulations, they refer to quite a lot of sophisticated goods, food safety uh, as well, and also to virtually all the services we trade with the EU, they actually uh, lie behind a great deal of the trade that we do. 
uh, that's going to go and nothing that we understand this government is trying to negotiate is going to change that. So that's quite interesting what you're saying, uh, that in a sense, the only thing we would get from a free trade deal would be no tariffs or very little in the way of tariffs. And yet, I think very often when people think about what trade deals are about and what uh, free trade is about, it is about reducing those tariffs. But I think what you're saying is it's other stuff. It's all the regulation around trade that really matters. That's where the big costs are going to come from. Yes, that's correct. Um, I mean, there are a few sectors where tariffs are significant. Uh, the most obvious one are in sort of agriculture and food. Uh, so we you know, we hear the example of uh, Welsh lamb, for instance, will be facing tariffs of uh, 40 to 50 percent getting into the EU if there is no deal. But in manufacturers, uh, we have motor vehicles facing a 10 percent tariff, clothing, textiles facing something between, say, 8 and 12 uh, percent. But in all other cases, manufacturing tariffs are pretty low, 2, 3, 4 percent. Uh, the real cost of doing trade is the paperwork, is the delays. You have a lorry queuing uh, that you're paying for that lorry, and yet it's not doing anything. You're paying for the driver, and uh, he or she isn't doing anything. And then um, a good deal of the regulation matters. Sometimes it just adds costs, and sometimes, in particular, particularly in areas um, like food, where safety is at stake, or in services where you can't test a thing before you use it, you just have to take on trust that somebody is properly qualified. If you don't meet the regulations, you don't trade, full stop. There'll be some trades that just will not work um, once we are outside that regulatory framework which the EU uses. So we've been, to the extent that we've been focusing on Brexit at all over the last few months as the pandemic has carried on, We've been focusing very much on this issue of whether we get a trade deal or not. But I think you're saying, actually, you know, that's not going to make that much difference, whether we get the sort of trade deal that might be on offer or we don't. Uh, we're definitely making trade an enormous amount more expensive and it's going to be economically costly. Yes, I think that's right. Um, uh, nearly everyone who's analysed uh, sort of options for Brexit um, has concluded that um, a no-deal Brexit is going to take something between 5 and 8% off UK GDP relative to where it would have been, and that if we have um, a free trade agreement of the sort, which um, the government uh, seems to be um, steering towards, uh, the loss of GDP will be 5 or 6%. Uh, in other words, this trade agreement that the government is uh, wanting to sign is probably um, worth about 1% of GDP. Uh, the OBR uh, analysed it last week and came up with 2%, and within the sort of errors of, uh, that we work on with these sorts of predictions, that's, you know, pretty much the same story, I think. So, yes, I think, you know, in a sense, the story, uh, the Brexit story, the big part of it was determined a year ago. Or, well, in fact, you know, some way before that, it was sort of confirmed a year ago. It really arose when the Chequers deal was thrown out. So that's, uh, you know, where we've ended up is what, you know, two or three years ago, even if we get this deal, 
it would have been considered a very hard Brexit. I mean, we haven't got a choice between no deal and a soft Brexit. We've got a choice between no deal and a hard Brexit. Is that a fair way of describing it? Yes, that's right. All the um, sort of soft alternatives that were um, analysed by people, but also, if we're honest, talked about some of the Brexiteers, have completely uh, dropped off the table. Um, To be fair, there were a number of analysts who said, actually, really the only credible Brexit is a very hard Brexit or no deal at all, uh, just because uh, the EU is very um, sensitive about access to the single market if you're not obeying the whole range of rules. The single market is a, a giant compromise. You, know, you 27, 28 countries in the past sat down and talk about these rules and you give us a bit of ground on that rule and uh, we'll give you a bit of ground on this rule and it all sort of you know, settles into a rather awkward compromise. You can't do that if one party says, yeah, well, we'd like the thing that you've given us, but we don't want to give you the thing that we had to give in return. And, you know, at least at the start, some people said, actually, the minute you start to pull one thread out of that bit of knitting, the whole thing is uh, just going to collapse. And we've got very nearly to that stage. So perhaps it wasn't surprising that this was going to be an incredibly difficult um, deal to do on anything other than a very thin basis. Um, I mean, you've talked about um, uh, loss of national income of 5 to 8% if we get no deal, 5 or 6% if we get the sort of deal that we're talking about at the moment. Um, just to be clear, have we lost any of that already in expectation, or is that all loss still to come? Uh, no, we have uh, managed to lose um, some of it. Um, the best estimates, I guess, are that we've lost between 2 and 3% of GDP already. And we also see the same thing in trade. Um, uh, volumes of trade between um, the UK and the EU are down. Um, interesting work by uh, Meredith Craw- uh, Crowley in uh, Cambridge, you know, suggests that 5% fewer British firms are entering EU markets and more of them are dropping out of EU markets, even over the last few years. And some work that I've done with a colleague um, uh, at, at the University of Exeter uh, suggested the same thing on the part of Portuguese exporters. And uh, we've looked at detailed Portuguese data and indeed, they have also sort of pulled back from the uh, UK market. And you know, that is just uncertainty or expectations of bad news to come, if you like. Nothing has changed so far. Uh, and yet you know, we're finding these significant changes in um, economic um, uh, behaviour, economic outcomes. So we're 2 or 3% worse off already than we would have been. Um, and probably that much and a bit more, maybe twice that much still to come. That that doesn't mean, does it, that we'll suddenly um, just get worse off next year. This is something that will happen gradually through time. Uh, the, the things that we have been able to analyse are all uh, sort of long-run issues, and indeed, as you say, they'll enter in time, um, you know, press what the time scale is, you know, we wave our hands and say, oh, wait, years, 10 years, something like that. The truth of the matter is that we don't have a terribly good handle on how rapidly it will happen. 
Um, one of the things that has also happened, actually, that we've identified in the UK Trade Policy Observatory is that foreign direct investment has reoriented quite a lot. Um, it's clearly down uh, from the rest of the world into the UK, and there's some, some hint um, that uh, UK investment in Europe has gone up, as has other countries. If that's typically, we think, is a sort of gradual process. Firms don't just up sticks and go. They wait till the next big reorganization, the next model of the car. Um, but if it happened very suddenly, and it can happen more quickly with service sectors than with manufacturing, where you've got all this plant and equipment, um, yeah, we could find, actually, that the descent is a bit quicker. I mean, I guess it's also worth saying it's a quite separate thing from these long-run issues. But we are, and I think everyone has now accepted, going to face a good deal of disruption on trade in the next three or six months. Um, we, it will certainly be worse if we don't get a deal because the atmosphere will be so much worse. There'll be a horrible blame game going on and people you know, on the continent and in the UK won't cut each other any slack at all. But even with um, a deal, um, there's a lot more paperwork that we don't quite understand. It's not quite clear how the queues will work in Dover and such places. And so there's going to be um, a sort of a short-term dip as well in uh, the early part of next year, I think. It's really important to distinguish those two things. So we're going to get an immediate sort of increase in costs and bureaucracy and delays and probably uh, you know, teething problems which go on for some period. But even when we're over that, that's by no means the end of it. There's going to be a longer period through which uh, the economy just doesn't grow as strongly. And you mentioned in particular this issue of foreign direct investment. And that's really important, isn't it, to the British economy? Because that you know, obviously both increases investment, but um, tends to in, be investment in quite high productivity, high wage kinds of areas. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, you know, I suppose, in a sense, the best example is the uh, motor vehicle industry, which was on its last legs in the, uh, the 1980s. And frankly, uh, Japanese investment uh, saved it. Uh, and the Japanese have been, uh, by their own standards, extraordinarily outspoken um, about how uh, disruptive and basically unfair they think this Brexit business is. You know, we invested in good faith in the UK to serve the European market. And here are you two, the EU and the UK, sort of messing it up. You're just not working hard to protect what we thought was a, a reasonable assumption. Um, it's, since the Japanese came in, also European manufacturers have moved into uh, the UK. Um, but that is certainly a case where foreign direct investment has been absolutely critical. Uh, we also find it with uh, European financial, uh, sorry, with um, US financial institutions coming into London to serve European markets, sort of head European headquarters is in London and able to serve the market. And so those are things where um, uh, suddenly appearing to be less attractive to foreign investment is going to take a hit on investment and productivity and market connection as well, probably. So I wanted to come on to that issue about services. I mean, most of the discussion about Brexit and trade has focused on things like cars and manufacturing. And it's very obvious, in a sense, how 
uh, that trade might be disrupted, both because there might be tariffs and more importantly, because there might be all sorts of delays at the border, uh, additional bureaucracy and so on, which you can envisage, you can see in your mind's eye how that is uh, increasing cost and making trade more difficult. There's a lot more uncertainty, isn't there, about what might happen to services trade. And it's services trade where we actually have a big surplus with the rest of the European Union. Is that, I mean, how worried should we be about our capacity to export professional services and so on into the EU? I think we as Britons, we as British taxpayers should be very worried about that. Um, we as British financial services sector firms are not quite so worried because we're just going to move across and you know, headquarters in Luxembourg or Paris or what have you. Uh, but we'll pay taxes there rather than in the UK. Um, either way, underpinning that is we would expect a fairly significant hit on, um, if not the whole of services, a good deal of uh, services trade. And um, uh, the services sector, Britain is uh, the preeminent services exporter. Among the major economies of the world, um, the share of exports that is accounted for by services is higher in the UK than anywhere else. Only places like Macau and the tourist islands in the Caribbean have a higher share of exports as services. Um, and so um, it's a worry because you know, we can identify a number of things that really help services trade with the EU. But it's also a worry because we have really rather poor data and not too much ability to put precise numbers on these things. Um, you know, I can talk about a 10% tariff on vehicles. It's unambiguously 10%. You know, you can go and look it up. But if I say, well, I think, you know, that the frictions on banking will sort of add to the costs of banking trade by 15%, it's a squidgy sort of number. You know, we're pretty sure it's there, but we really don't know. And uh, to the extent that we can analyse it, there's you know, not too much agreement. So we've got uh, you know, uncertainty, and that's bad for the investment. And as, it, you know, as the uncertainty clears, the fog clears, what we see is not very nice. And the sorts of things that get in the way here are, as it were, mutual recognition, recognition of qualifications, recognition of quality, and um, just a whole series of problems for trade, which actually I think I'm right in saying almost no free trade agreements around the world really get over because they do tend to be focused on goods. Yes, it's true. Uh, free trade agreements find making services deals, services elements difficult. Uh, services agreements do include some Oh, sorry, uh, trade agreements do include some services um, components, um, but generally rather few, generally not very liberalising, merely sort of confirming um, access that is granted already. Part of the problem is uh, that trade ministries don't own the services sectors in sort of domestic terms. You know, you want to liberalise finance, you've got to talk to the regulators, the Bank of England. If you want to uh, liberalise um, audiovisual, you've got to be friendly with the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And so the internal politics of services agreements, setting aside the fact that we can't measure very carefully what's going on, uh, make it very difficult. 
But as you said, the, 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 the sort of things that really matter in services is recognition of qualifications. Is this dentist qualified to drill my teeth or not? Um, it is uh, certain other sort of prudential regulations. Uh, do we trust this bank is the capital in, a, capital in a place where if something went wrong, we could get our money back? And it also hinges quite heavily on the movement of people. Um, within the European Union, we have free movement of workers. Um, and while it is actually becoming slightly more constrained uh, with the director, uh, directed workers um, uh, directive, um, uh, it still is much freer within the European Union than where anybody else and or anywhere else. And so what we have is you have a service transaction and somebody goes out to see the client. That is something that's going to become much more difficult um, if we don't have free movement of people. So that's a sort of a generic problem. And there's also a worry about data exchange, the extent to which uh, UK data regulations will be deemed to be equivalent to um, adequate for EU purposes, and therefore whether or not we can freely exchange data. So there are specifics, you know, is the dentist qualified? There are general issues as well uh, that really uh, have eased services trade in Europe and therefore take them away. It's a hindrance. And as you say, that's especially important to the UK because we are very specialist in services exports and a lot of those service exports are to the EU and that will become much more difficult. And you also raise the issue of the cost to the exchequer, because of course, a lot of these services employ a lot of very highly paid people who pay an awful lot of tax. And actually, a very high fraction of those are themselves EU citizens. And therefore, we might very quickly lose quite a lot of um, very big taxpayers. Yes, I know. I think that's exactly right. And um, in a sense, it's more your area than mine. But there comes a point where people who are thinking of lending to Britain will wonder whether, in a sense, you know, the British government has got the capacity to pay back all these debts because its tax base is eroding. And that's what actually will precipitate a very much steeper and quicker fall. Uh, you don't have sudden falls uh, because factories all get up and move. But if suddenly confidence in the UK economy or the UK government evaporated, then you would find very dramatic changes in exchange rates and life would be pretty uncomfortable. Now you're really scaring me. (laughs) (laughs) Can you put any sort of probability on that sort of thing happening? Oh, well, I'm a natural pessimist. (laughs) No, I think uh, I trust... um, it is not the first time I've thought over the last five years, but I trust that government is going to sort of calm down and start to take a number of these decisions, as it were, on more economic grounds than on political grounds. And therefore, I think that the British government is going to work hard to maintain its credibility as a borrower, even if that involves uh, some political discomfort. But I think one can't completely discount uh, the idea uh, that uh, something goes wrong in that process and uh, foreign investors suddenly uh, do get a bit fed up. That's uh, and and that is the sort of thing that, as you say, government really does need to worry about because 
in a sense, I suppose we can cope with being five or even eight percent worse off in eight years' time than we otherwise would have been. We'll look enviously across the channel at all these Europeans with higher living standards, but um, you know we're a rich country. Uh, but if we, if international investors really start to lose confidence in us, the pound plunges, we have to push up interest rates um, to for government to borrow and so on. Then that really does. Uh, become a, an immediate uh, disaster. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right, Paul. Um, you know, Brexit per se is not an existential threat. It's just pretty uncomfortable. And we've had some bad policy. Over the course of my lifetime, I've seen some pretty bad policy. Um, but you know, if it turns into a crisis, and of course a crisis is almost by definition unforeseen, um, uh, you know, uh, then it is uh, very, uh, uh, very nasty indeed. Oh gosh! Well, let, let's let's move on to something slightly less um, terrifying and uh, think again a little bit more about the medium run. Um, so we've been have all this focus on uh, what's going to happen on the first of January. Uh, what happens after the first of January? I mean, does the government is, is that it? Whatever deal or no deal we have, do we stop discussing, or are we going to be uh, in negotiation for years to come? Um, oh, I think Brexit is going to run and run. Uh, and it's got to run in two forms, which are slightly connected, but they're not quite the same. Um, the first is we've taken over a whole set of powers and responsibilities, policy areas uh, that previously were analysed and often ruled on by the EU. We're going to have to do them ourselves. And so, in a sense, even just for domestic uh, purposes, it's going to take quite a long time to settle down. We're going to take quite a long time to work out what sort of regime we want in this and that. Uh, to the extent that we set up institutions to sort of carry on these regulatory functions, what essentially they've done is replicated the European um, rule book. We're going to spend some time, presumably, you know, tinkering with this. So I think we're going to find it won't be... Um, entitled um, Brexit, but it is essentially the sort of settling down of um, the consequences of Brexit, as it were, we, uh, as we develop a, a sort of independent position in a lot of these things. A number of those, and very clearly trade, uh, are going to have to be negotiated. The situation, I think, will be that relatively soon, we're going to start talking to the Europeans again and not about re-entering the European Union. Don't see that happening at all, or at least not for a very long time. But to try and work out sort of pragmatic ways that we can actually start to trade a bit more efficiently. Uh, it's not quite conceivable in the current political atmosphere, but I think relatively soon governments will get around to that. And then second, we've got a lot of trade agreements with other countries to negotiate. The government's pleased that it's rolled over all of the agreements that it had, uh, or no, not all, actually, about uh, two-thirds of the agreements it had uh, by virtue of membership of the European Union. But these are pure replications. Well, to the extent that it's possible to replicate their pure replications, they haven't exploited any of this newfound freedom that we've got to strike our own deals, to modify the deals in ways that suits the UK. And at least a number of partners are saying, well, we have signed this continuity agreement, but we're going to have to go back to the table. And in Korea, it's explicit. 
within two years, negotiations start again. And then we've got countries we haven't got agreements with, Australia and New Zealand, hope they won't be too difficult, the US, which will be very difficult. So I think, yeah, we're going to find we're negotiating trade agreements, either quite fresh ones or updating the ones we've got uh, for, again, a good few years, possibly decades. You don't sound terribly um, positive about the opportunities there. One of the um, arguments of those favouring Brexit was that this would free us to sign a whole lot of new trade agreements around the world. And with increased globalisation, the EU was becoming less important. Trade deals of the rest of the world were more important. And in the end, um, we could reorient ourselves away from um, the uh, the EU and, and, and gain benefits um, from that. Is, is, is there any truth in any of that? Oh, there's certainly truth in it. Um, but what we understand about international trade, it's the, almost the closest that we've got to a law of physics, is uh, that distance erodes the amount of trade that two trading partners do. And the point about Europe is, as well as being rich and big, it's very close. All right, you're not tying goods up for long periods, you know exactly what's going on, easy to contact, easy to correct things. Uh, trading with distant partners is much more difficult. And therefore, it seems unlikely that we'd ever sort of talk up levels of trade with uh, the US or with Japan to uh, sort of uh, the level at which um, the increment would uh, displace the reduced trade with the EU. And that, sorry, that's just a point of arithmetic, isn't it? I mean, we have about half of our trade with the EU, so even a small reduction in that, you need to have a big proportionate increase in trade with everyone else. Yes, that's exactly right. You'd have to sort of double your trade with... Yeah, if we if we lose 5% of our trade with the EU, you have to double your trade with uh, 10% of the other countries, or you have to you know, increase trade with everybody else by 5%. That's actually quite difficult. Um, so I think, as you say, it's arithmetic. The ad- adding up is not very uh, encouraging. Not much here seems to be. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's my style, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, Alan. You and me both. Um, what, what about what about the USA? Where, where, where are we with um, you know uh, negotiating a trade deal with the US? And what what are the what what, what are the prospects? And what what are the potential benefits? I think that we have now lost the chance of a very rapid agreement with the US. Um, you know, clearly, the Trump administration was very keen and the British um, administration was very keen. Um, but they encountered quite a number of problems, particularly uh, US demands of the UK, so that the British government felt obliged to be very resistant over, for instance, uh, ancillary services in the health service over food standards. You know, we've established a commission on trade and agriculture, uh, really, as a result of that. And so, you know, the Department of International Trade, you know, has now conceded it's going to take into next year. Once we get into next year, there's quite a lot of headwinds. Um, President Biden doesn't look likely to prioritise trade. He doesn't look particularly likely to prioritise the UK over the EU. Um, Quite a lot of people think that he is not going to invest very heavily 
in renewing the so-called trade promotion authority, the fast-track way in which Congress grants the executive the right to sign trade agreements and it only votes up or down on them. Without fast-track authority, Congress can unpick any deal, and that makes negotiating uh, with the US uh, very unattractive. You can do the staff work, the preliminary work, but when it comes to a real deal, you don't want to be in a position where Congress says, well, we like that and we'll keep that, but we're not going to, we don't like that, so you can't have that. It just undoes the whole deal. So I think, frankly, we are probably in for a long haul with the US. So um, you've you've set out all of the <laughs> all of the problems here. I think it's pretty convincing that we are going to be worse off into the longer term as a result of um, withdrawing from the EU and its uh, customs union and single market. But that's all quite abstract in a sense. Can you say anything about who is going to suffer? Are we all going to be five to eight percent worse off? Or are some people in some industries and some bits of the country going to be really badly hit while other people are broadly protected? I mean, can you say anything about the distributional effects of all of this? We, we try. Um, estimates vary quite a lot. Uh, if there is no deal, we can be very clear that motor vehicle people involved in producing motor vehicles, people um, uh, producing um, British food are going to suffer heavily. Um, most of what I think is likely to happen suggests that services are going to suffer quite a lot, or some services. But I think, you know, as I said earlier, we don't have such a good handle on that. But if services suffer, we will see more of the grief coming back to the southeast, uh, London and the southeast, uh, relatively speaking. Um, the other areas that um, seem likely to uh, suffer because we have a sort of regulatory divergence, or we don't have a very smooth regulatory process with the EU, um, are some of the more sophisticated manufacturing sectors, and they are moderately much distributed around uh, the country. Um, so while I think we can probably think of very specific sectors that are even firms perhaps that are going to find it very, very difficult, um, while I have looked at the distribution across um, constituencies even, um, the bands of error are um, pretty uh, wide and the effects, the differences are pretty localised. If you are really heavily, uh, for instance, into um, legal services, um, as um, uh, Mr. Star um, Mr. Keir Starmer's constituency is, you know, you're going to be uh, nailed to the ground if we really get into a position where legal services no longer uh, work so well. Similarly, if you're in um, one of the car producing constituencies. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very reluctant. Uh, well, I just don't feel I quite have the evidence to make confident statements about, oh, Scotland will be all right, Northern Ireland will suffer, that sort of thing. Uh, I just don't think we've got much of a handle. Well, having said that, let me backtrack a little bit. Northern Ireland has got serious problems. Uh, you know, I think uh, there we have a sort of compromise which the government now doesn't feel satisfied with, and it's difficult to see how that is going to be solved in a satisfactory way, absent 
either more agreement with the um, uh, with the EU, or in fact very large subsidies from London to sort of make up for the extra frictions. Uh, so I th- I'm afraid I think that Northern Ireland is um, uh, has got a pretty um, pessimistic outlook as a result of Brexit. The rest of uh, Great Britain, it's difficult really to spot one just one region from another. Because I think you're saying the uh, the impact of Brexit will be widely distributed. It's going to hit manufacturing, but it's also going to hit services. Yes, that's right. So services are big almost everywhere, and we don't have so much of a handle on how they will decline. And manufacturing is very specific. Um, you know, there will be some goods that just fall foul of a bit of regulatory clearance. And, uh, you know, for instance, the sectors in which tariffs are high, I mentioned motor vehicles, but also clothing in Leicester. I mean, Leicester, you're pretty dependent on uh, clothing exports. You know, so it, it, it comes down to a more local level. So um, none of that's desperately um, cheery. I mean, is, is, there any, is there any good news here? I mean, is, I mean either um, because there are some definite benefits to this or because, you know, um, as people have often said to me, in the end, the economy will work itself out. Um, we'll end up doing different stuff. Uh, and, um, you know, we might get to a different sort of uh, equilibrium in 10 years' time, but we won't really be any worse off. Um. I can't be quite as optimistic as that. You are exactly right that the economy you know, will work its way out. Um, economies, uh, the British economy is fairly good in this respect. Economies are fairly flexible. Um, and people are very inventive once the status quo is very clearly not on offer anymore. And so I do think that we will start to do different things and sell them and buy them with different people uh, to some extent. However, it's not clear to me uh, that, as it were, that adjustment will take us back to the same level of income as we would have had otherwise. Um, It was very advantageous for services producers for the sort of middle to high technology manufacturers to have this big, rich European market on the doorstep. And if it's not there, we'll find something else to do, but it doesn't mean to say that something else will generate quite the same level of incomes. Not least because, as you say, it's some of the best paid, most uh, productive and technologically advanced bits of the economy that are going to be affected. And they pay taxes. (laughs) And they pay taxes. Well, I think we've probably come to the end, Alan. Thank you very much for that. I usually say at this point, if you enjoyed this episode, please hit subscribe and rate us. But I'm not sure that enjoyment is quite on the agenda, given the rather uh, rather bleak um, outlook I think we've just heard about. But if you did enjoy this episode, please do hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of the latest work of the IFS by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. And clearly, uh, the work of Alan Winters by going to the Trade Observatory uh, website at the University of Sussex. So do stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon.